Well, hey guys, welcome. And uh, I'm excited to share with you my dear friends, Andre and Marianne Raba, uh, great ministry from South Africa. And like I said, thanks for waking up at 2.30 in the morning, your time, to do this. And uh, uh, you can go check them out, everything they're about at alwaysloved.net, alwaysloved.net. And uh, I'd really recommend it. Um, dear friends, in fact, we're, uh, we're thinking about doing a ski place, a ski summit or something like that in Switzerland or maybe in Colorado. We don't know where, but uh, just have a, a, a time with these guys would just be awesome. But anyway, uh, fantastic. Uh, just have a grasp of the love of God and who he is. And, and we were getting a lot of questions about uh, the Satan and the devil and and, uh, and I think what you'll, you'll really, uh, you know, here, here's how I look at it. In 1 John, John says, perfect love casts out all fear. So any theology, any interpretation of scripture where we have somehow fear involved, in my mind, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, Andre and Mary, and it's not, it's not the good news, the truly good news. And so I think you'll be fascinated about where this idea of the devil came from and how the early church looked at it and, and uh, just... This whole concept is going to be about deconstructing the devil. So anyway, uh, with that said, Andre and Marianne, uh, uh, have at it. Sure love you guys and appreciate you jumping on here. Thank you. Such a joy to be here. And yeah, I, I first want to pick up on exactly what you said, that the motivation for um, dealing with this topic is really to help people break free from the fear and the, the bondage um, that this topic often entails. Um, our, our online school, uh, Mimesis Academy, one of the courses specifically focused on the symbolism of evil. And we've had more um, testimonies and feedback from that module than from anything else, because uh, probably because many of the, the people who have done it or, or the people that that brought testimonies out of that specific course of people who had the same kind of charismatic Pentecostal background as myself, um, in which the devil features quite prominently. Uh, I know from a very young age, um, even I think preschool, I, I went to some deliverance ministry meetings and my goodness me, the, the reality of demon possession is um, brought home in a very spectacular way. And also because we minister in, um, in Africa, that kind of manifestation, etc., is uh, often quite um, prominent. In any case, one, to, to just add on to that motivation be, behind why we deal with this theme, for instance, one of the testimonies uh, was a lady who, when, when she initially gave her life to the Lord as a teenager, the, the pastor said, okay, from tonight on, don't be surprised if you encounter all kinds of devilish things because the devil is mad at what you've done. And so as a teenager, she started experiencing all kinds of manifestations at home and that then 
went on into a marriage by the time she did the course, th these kind of things have been happening in their family for 30 years, things falling out, out of cupboards, all kinds of stuff in the house. And after, I think it was the second week on the course where we deal with the symbolism of evil, she came back and she wrote a assignment. And during writing it, she said, I realized that for the first time in 30 years, there has been no manifestation in my house. And the only thing that changed has been my thinking concerning evil, has been my understanding of evil. And so, um, yes, to start it off with that, the, the, way, um, the way we understand evil can either energize it, empower it <laughs> in our lives, or it can completely sack the life out of that, that theme <laughs> and that concept. Um, so to begin, uh, the concept of Satan, uh, I think w the first point I want to make is that this is a subject that develops throughout Scripture, that the Satan that we are um, aware of today within popular Christian teaching, etc., is non-existent in early Hebrew um, thinking and theology. Uh, we can trace how this concept developed. And so that might be a, a new idea for, for some people, but many of these themes throughout the scripture uh, has got different branches of development. So so all of the scripture doesn't say exactly the same thing about the same subject. It's almost like throughout the development of the Old Testament, some of the prophets and theologians are kind of arguing the point in which direction are we going to understand this theme. And then when it comes to the concept of the Satan, it, it's the same path of development. So, to start off with, satanos, uh, or, or the Hebrew word for uh, what we know as the Satan, is, is not a proper name. It is a noun. And in, uh, so, for instance, David is described as satanos. <laughs> so many of the, many of the Old Testament uh, patriarchs are at one stage or another described as the satanos. Why? Because it simply meant the enemy or the adversary or the opponent. So David was an enemy, a satanos of, of some people, and, and so many of the other patriarchs. Patriarch. Uh, so it begins off as a very natural description of a state of enmity or, or somebody that opposes you. The first time that the concept is actually used as a description of an angelic being um, is when the Lord sends a messenger or angel to oppose Balaam. And Balaam is 
the prophet that's going in the wrong direction and that's the whole story of the talking donkey etc and so that whole picture is the first time that word is used of a can you say a angelic being the way we understand it um to throw in a little bit of extra understanding of how this concept developed, I've got to make a quick detour to say how another idea developed as well. And this is Israel's whole idea of who and what God is. Um, Israel doesn't just fall out of heaven with a perfect doctrine. They begin, like many of the other pagan nations around them, um, believing in many gods. Uh, and, and we can see evidence of that throughout the, the Old Testament as well, uh, where they say our God is, is the best. Our God, uh, let all the other gods bow before him. Now, we know eventually they make a move which is both, both evolutionary, but also a, a radical new understanding of who and what God is. They make a move to monotheism. Now, that move greatly intensifies the problem of evil because if there's many gods, um, it's a bit easier to explain evil because our God is good to us. And whenever we, you know, we've got the proper relationship with him, if we sacrifice and do whatever how God requires, our relationship with our God is good. And whatever evil then happens to our tribe or to our community is because of other gods. It's the other tribes. And, and either their God is stronger or um, but it's easy to assign evil to the outsider and the outsider's god but when a move is made to monotheism where there is one god or where god is one is probably a better way to describe monotheism because it's not just a simple um arithmetic change of many to one. It's more a complete new category of understanding God. When God is one and he is sovereign and in control of everything, then the problem of evil becomes more acute because how, how can we say God is good and for us and yet my son or daughter dies a violent and premature death. Uh, and, and so that problem of evil becomes more and more acute with, with the um, development of monotheism. So as the story progresses, and uh, so in early monotheism, Everything good and evil is assigned to God. And there's scriptures, you know, in Isaiah, it says, I, I create the evil and I create the good. I send um, prosperity and I send calamity. Everything proceeds from God in early monotheism. Uh, and the theological tension 
you can understand is growing and growing, but I must maybe give you an actual example. Um, let me quickly get that here. I've got in Desire Found Me, the book, I've got three chapters that deals with this subject. And um, to just give an example of how the understanding of, of the devil or, or the Satan developed, uh, I'm going to take one scripture. Well, actually, it's one story told twice in the Old Testament. And the basic events of the story are the same. And that is David wants to do a census. And that's problematic because not everybody agrees that he should do it because it probably has tax implications, etc. But in any case, there's an argument whether he should do it or not. But David's uh, decision stand and, and he went and did the census, took about nine months. And then shortly after that, a disaster hits Israel and 70,000 people die. And in this, the story is recorded in two places. In the first place, it's recorded in 2 Samuel 24. And then at the later stage, it is also recorded in 1 Chronicles 21. Now in uh, 2 Samuel 24, which is the earlier version, and this is as monotheism, is in its early stages and everything's assigned to God. The storyteller basically says Yahweh was mad at Israel. He was so mad that he was ready to slaughter 70,000 people. But basically, he did not have all the justification yet to do it. So he tempts David <laughs> to do a census. David succumbs to the seduction of, of Yahweh, and he does the census, and then Yahweh kills 70,000 people. So in, in Samuel's interpretation of the events, Yahweh is the source of the temptation, the source of the destruction, the source of all of it. But Later in their theological development, um, the writer of Chronicles in 1 Chronicles 21 has developed a new understanding of how we assign the different functions to God or to what they knew as the, um, the prosecuting angel. <laughs> And so in, in Chronicles, it is the Satan that tempts David. So it tells exactly the same story, but in Samuel, it is Yahweh that tempts David. And in Chronicles, it's the Satan, because the, the chronicler could no longer assign this difficult task of, of temptation and to God. And so these unpleasant events um, are now more and more assigned to a specific messenger who later on becomes known as the Satan. 
And so he does the tempting. He, he draws David into this place of doing a census. It's still Yahweh that does the distraction. But you can see that there's a change in their theology. There's a change in their thinking. But at this early stage, it is not... Um, and how they're doing it is they're chipping away at it. They know exactly what they're doing. They're chipping away at it little by little by little by little. Hold on, I'm going to need everybody. Even, you know, an employer, if they know you have a... And then, Andre, you can un unmute yourself. So as people jump on, I'll have to... Uh, mute them like that, sorry. So um, at this early stage, it's important to also realize that um, this, this assignment of all the prosecuting and opposing and adversarial qualities to a specific messenger, um, it, this, the Satan wasn't at that stage seen as an enemy of God but as an employee. <laughs> um, so God's the one who sends uh, this angel to oppose belong, to be the Satan, etc. We also have pictures, for instance, in Job or in Zechariah 3, where um, the Satan is invited with all the other heavenly hosts to come and be present in the heavenly court as they discuss matters. So at this early stage of how they develop this idea, um, the Satan is not an enemy, he's an employee. Um, it is only after Israel goes into the exile, into Babylon, this is about um, 600 years before Christ, that there they encounter um, Zohestrianism, and it is in Zohestrianism that there is a very definite divide between um, good and evil, between the forces of light and the forces of darkness, and they are at enmity against one another. There is no, um, there's no relationship except enmity. You either on one side or the other side. There's nothing in between. And it is as Israel emerges from this uh, exile that ideas about the Satan having fallen, having taken angels with him, um, is further developed in book in extra biblical books like the book of Enoch. That is really one of the books that speculates about this big rebellion that took place. And you know, those ideas are so visual, they are so fantastic that they grab the imagination of, um, of many of uh, the Jewish thinkers, specifically a group called the Pharisees, which was one, one of the groups. They, they like this idea. And by the time we get to the New Testament, um, actually the occurrence of 
demons or the devil or, or any subjects that deal with that in the Old Testament are very scarce. They, they are few, but they're very scarce. By the time we get to the New Testament, when they come out of the exile, there are devils everywhere. Um, anything that goes wrong, if you have a toothache, it's, it's a devil. If your tone is painful, it's a devil. Everything's assigned to demonic forces. Um, there are, however, also even in the New Testament, um, a beautiful uh, uh, alternative way of understanding uh, evil and the Satan if we compare different Gospels. But maybe I'll give a break there and just open it up to any questions or thoughts from you, Mike. Yeah, sure. Um, and I think, uh, I think what's, what's – and, you know, our, our mutual friend Brad Jerzak, he's, he's really shared a lot with me in, in a lot of this too. And he uses big theological terms that I tell him he has to use more Iowa words where I grew up. So I'll have to go look him up. But, uh, uh, you know, it, kind of like you're saying is I think for most people, especially in the West here where, where we grew up, is it was a very developed, the Satan's a real evil force that we have to deal with on the outside. The devils, the diablos, the demons are real evil forces. And, uh, and the early church, as you said, really didn't have that idea. They, they really had this idea that... Uh, uh, God is good, and he doesn't create any evil. Well, evil is really our own darkness, our own perception, and our own, quote-unquote, sin of misusing or misbelieving who we are in Christ and that fallen mindset. And so maybe just share on that a little bit, you know, that uh, I, yes. they weren't these, you know, we, we Scripture is very thin in the whole idea that I was taught that uh, as they shifted to monotheism and, and God is only good and he doesn't create anything dark or evil. Well, now, like you said, we have this challenge because Job, in the Old Testament stories, well, Satan was in the council of the gods. And like you said, with Zoroastrianism, there's good gods and bad gods. And then as God starts to reveal himself to the nation of Israel, he goes, no, there's only one God. What, yes. well, what do we do now? We got to go re reinterpret our scriptures. And then so we yeah. get the concept of a fallen angel, right? Yes. So maybe anything you want to share on that. And uh, guys, if you have specific questions, um, you can put them in the chat too, and we can, uh, we can ask some with Andre and Marianne. Okay. That, uh, that definitely, again, makes the problem of evil so acute if, if God is one, if God is um, uh, sovereign and, and we're trying to understand the reality of evil, because that is still real. How do we explain it? Um, and so I want to maybe highlight another train of thought that runs throughout Scripture, um, right to the New Testament, that has a, a completely different perspective and view on evil. So, so the perspective we've kind of just dealt with is the way in which evil was personified. So what I also want to make clear to people always is we do not doubt the reality of evil. We don't even doubt the, the reality of demonic manifestations. We, we deal with those kind of things too often to, to say, no, it's just 
fake stuff, but, but the re- those phenomena are real. Um, but how we explain them needs to, uh, I think, develop beyond just uh, religious superstitions. And so there's another train of thought that runs throughout uh, the scriptures. Um, it's a train of thought. It's not the only train of thought. But one, another train of thought is the idea, which was quite radical, um, that starts even in the book of Genesis, uh, that begins suggesting that if we cannot just blame other gods for the evil that happens, then maybe we must go to the very root of this problem and realize that it is a fundamental misunderstanding of who God is. Uh, And so it's symbolized by this partaking of the tree of the knowledge of good and bad. And, And even that in itself, to know, to be able to make value judgments, that's not wrong. But the way in which humanity came into that knowledge with a suggestion that you are not enough, um, that you are not what you're supposed to be, that you are not like God, and that sense of inadequacy, sense of lack, stirs a twisted desire and the twisted perception of God, because God is now perceived as the one who withholds. And I want what God wants to withhold from me. This, this is just the way desire works. If you are told you can't have it, you want it more. Um, if you put, put the box of chocolates in the middle of... Um, 10-year-olds having a party and saying, I'm just going to go out for an hour, don't touch that box of chocolates. That, that's the greatest temptation. It's, there's probably going to be some chocolates gone, you're going to come back and no one knows where they went. Um, but that twisting of desire that causes a misconception of who God is, causes us to grasp after every fruit that can fill that sense of lack or that that void. And so one of the most fundamental human qualities that we then um, see by the end of Genesis, where, where man is confronted Um, with the fact that he has done exactly what he wasn't supposed to do, is the tendency that we have to say, it wasn't me, it's this wife you gave me. (laughs) And um, Eve says, it wasn't me, it was the snake that you created. And so right in the beginning of the story, we we start having an insight into the human condition, which is the way in which we deal with the conflict within ourselves and with the guilt that we often experience within that conflict is to exercise it, to, to uh, to, to cast it out 
onto the guilt of another. And so the whole um, process of scapegoating, the process by which I transform my own conflict and guilt into the guilt of another, is present very early in the scripture. And this idea runs throughout the scripture. So I'm going to try and be as concise and clear as I, I can be. There's a train of thought throughout Scripture that does not perceive evil to be a personified character, but it perceives evil as a principle or what the New Testament will call principalities and powers. And these principles and these powers can find a real existence within the thought structures, both of individuals and of actual um, societal powers. So, for instance, the, the power, the government of Rome is seen as a principality and a power that did not know what they were doing when they crucified Jesus. But this very act would be their undoing. Um, and so that train of thought comes all the way through to the Gospels. In Matthew, we still have uh, a vision of the temptation of Jesus where it is the actual personification of evil that asks Jesus, can you turn these stones into bread? Um, why don't you prove who you are by jumping off the temple? and angels will catch you, and everyone will see this miracle and understand that God's on your side and you're right. Or ultimately, why don't you just submit to my way of doing things, and all these kingdoms will be yours. So in Matthew, these temptations are still unfolding within a story where the devil is a personified character that appears to Jesus. But in the book of John, the same temptations occur. Uh, you might wonder where, because there's not just one chapter that deals with it. But in the book of John, there's also a story of people appearing to Jesus and say, hey, uh, you know, Moses gave us bread in the wilderness. Show us what you can do. do. Do another one of those miracles. That's very much the same temptation as turn these stones into bread. There's also the temptation to have an open display of his power. His brothers, whom it says in John, did not believe in him, tells him, if you are a prophet, why don't you go up to the great feast in, in Jerusalem and do your stuff there, do your miracles there? I mean, that will prove it to everyone. So it's very much the same temptation as jump off this temple, you know, and you will show everyone who you are. And then as well, there's the temptation to simply do do power the world's way. So after he actually fed the 5,000 in the wilderness, they come together and they want to make him king. Yeah, he's got the kind of support that every rebel leader only dreams about. A whole crowd wants to go with him and just 
displace Herod uh, and make him king. And Jesus withdraws into the wilderness because this is again that temptation of influencing your world either in God's way or in this power-grabbing way. So in the book of John, it is interesting that there's not one demon that is cast out. There's not one exorcism. And every temptation that is similar to the temptations in Matthew, etc., they always come through people or through a community. And when Jesus does speak about or use the term Satan, it is for a person, for Peter, saying, get behind me, Satan, because you are not mindful of the things of God. And so we can see this different perspective on evil in the book of John compared to the other Gospels. Uh, again, I don't doubt that there's a train of thought that always personifies the devil. But there is this train of thought that has got a, maybe just a more sophisticated understanding in what is actually going on here, what is actually happening. The book of James, um, James 3, also speaks about, um, you know, when anyone is tempted, don't say, I'm tempted by God. Um, don't even say I'm tempted by the devil. <laughs> I'll add that in. But every man is tempted by his own desires being twisted. And when that is fulfilled, it gives birth to sin. And, uh, and, and why is there wars and confusions and those things amongst you, uh, conflict? It's because of the twisting of your own desires. Paul also speaks about um, this twisting of desire and this conflict, which is... Uh, a, a, a conflict within him rather than trying to scapegoat someone else. Um, maybe a last thought on that, um, and this is where I, I so enjoy Brad Jerzak's history um, and his context within the Eastern Orthodox Church as well, um, who actually... I find it quite delightful that they don't have a set doctrine of atonement. They basically just say, whatever theory you need to come to the conclusion that death has been defeated and evil has been brought to naught, great, go with it. But that needs to be the conclusion. Death is defeated. <laughs> and the devil and whatever had power over it is now no longer a factor. And that is the gloriously good news of Jesus. Because the scriptures focus on, on the cross is most definitely this is the place in which the powers of evil and darkness, in which the devil was defeated. Um, but what is perplexing is that the closer we get to the cross, the more the character of Satan disappears, or does it? Maybe the whole nature and character of evil is transformed in the process of exposing it. And so the closer we move to the cross, the more 
it is exposed for what it really is. And what it really is, is this, this cycle by which we reflect one another's desires, by which we reflect one another's confusion that is greatly intensified when it moves between two people into more and more and more people, into a crowd, into a situation where you are either part of the crowd or you are part of the scapegoat. And when that decision becomes so intense, even the disciples have to decide, am I with Jesus or am I with the crowd? And, and Peter, it says that he curses Jesus. <laughs> I don't know this man. Even with him, there is the whole story is a revelation that we are part of a cycle that blinds us to the extent that we deny what we thought we could never deny. And Jesus comes to expose that whole thing because on the cross, we realize that God is not the one who's our problem. You know, even in the act of murdering him, he forgives us. We always thought, you know, in the whole process of scapegoating, God is the one who justifies our violence. But the cross unveils and reveals to us that God does not justify your violence. He, he suffers it. <laughs> and secondly, what we realize at the cross as well is there's no one else doing this except us. <laughs> that people without that intimacy and relationship with God um, goes into the exact opposite, that we reflect what we behold. And if we don't behold the God of love, we can become extremely violent and uh, do what is unthinkable. And so the cross is really an exposure of the very origin and the very nature of evil, yeah, which always, you know, even in the Old Testament, the first time sin is mentioned, it is mentioned in the context of murder, in the context of violence. And uh, it's surprising that I have to say, but often we do have to, that there's not one act of violence, not one act of murder, not one evil act in this world that is committed by naughty little fallen angels. Every one of those acts are committed by people whose minds and desires have been twisted. And so that is, you know, I think a part of why the subject is important, number one, to set people free from irrational fear, and number two, for us to take responsibility of who and what we are. Yeah. Yeah, I love it. You, you answered a bunch of the questions, and you, you really just answered this too, but just maybe a, a few more, uh, if you can expound on this, is, is uh, like Andre and Marianne said, is we're not denying demonic manifestation. As, as these guys know, I went to this intense Bible school in Africa, in Lagos, Nigeria, so we saw it. We saw all kinds of crazy things. Yes. So what's really the source of that? 
and then also like the best way that you guys would deal with it today. Can you expound on that? Excellent question. So um, I would suggest if anybody is really interested in this subject to try and get a hold of a little book called The Puppets of Desire um, by Jean-Michel Orgeli. And it's quite a rare book. I could only find a, um, a, a second-hand copy of it. But if you can get hold of it at the library or something, what he does is to use the understanding of Rene Girard, the understanding of how desire forms personality. That's why in hypnosis, you know, a person, a desire can be suggested to a person under hypnosis. And that desire forms a personality on its own that can act and do things that once the person is out of hypnosis, he can't remember because it's two different personalities and the other one doesn't exist anymore. And so the understanding that it's not your personality that generates your desires, but it's your desires that generates your personality. Um, is a very key ingredient to understanding the whole process of what we would describe as possession. And in this book, he has very definite um, case studies uh, in which he exposes that whole process. Now, I know we, we've seen some crazy things, and, and I've had people say, you can't just you can't explain this psychologically. I mean, this, this obviously is a supernatural being, so it must be fallen angels. So, so that's quite curious. The, the fact that we can't explain it means that any explanation we can imagine is now valid. <laughs> um, no, there, there are better ways of thinking about it. So... Let me give an example of how we dealt with it. Um, so maybe what I want to start off with is I think the creative capacity of the human spirit has been greatly underestimated. Uh, so we see manifestations and things that are way beyond our current ability to explain but that's exactly it. We do not actually just have the knowledge yet of how to explain the fact that the, the human spirit is capable of, of producing events and experiences that are phenomenal. Um, so about two or three years ago, you know, we've been involved in some form of deliverance ministry because we had to. We we ministering in Africa often. and But during this time, after I wrote Desire Found Me and my whole understanding of what is actually happening was transformed, we were ministering in a community in, in Europe. Um, and... This was a, a community like many of the kind of charismatic communities we go to where the manifestation of the Holy Spirit is greatly valued. 
but we can also, you know, just go in a weird and wonderful way. So what was happening is some of the young kids, they were aged between 10 and 14. Every time there's a meeting, they would, you know, have this experience of the Holy Spirit and they could dance like they could not normally dance and they can move like they could not normally move and, and different manifestations. But three of these girls became so involved in one another um, without knowing it, they were imitating one another. And this sometimes happened in these kind of charismatic meet meetings. We, we, there's the genuine and there's just the flaky, uh, flaky stuff, you know. There, there's genuine, wonderful experiences and manifestations of God's Spirit. But very often it's just people wanting to imitate other people um, to kind of experience the same emotion. And this is what was starting to happen be between these three girls. They were reflecting one another. And I think the oldest girl at one stage maybe subconsciously realized what was happening, that this was not the manifestation of God's spirit. This was just three of us imitating one another and she went into what can I call it a deaf state where she sat without any movement without her eyes twitching without just as if she was the living dead and the two other girls went out of their minds crying whatever um, they had no one to imitate any anymore except the death that was staring back to them. And so while we were doing meetings, a group of parents came to us and said, could you help? We, we think our children are possessed. And um, so we went um, to cut a long story short because it was quite traumatic to even get them separated. But we, we got the three girls separated. We, we sat with each one of them and brought them back even before they were cognitively there. We brought them back to just behold the image of their Abba, the one who adored them, the one who they are made to reflect. And in this process of them coming back to seeing the adoration of their Abba, to experiencing the love of their Papa. They started reflecting that. They had an authentic source of reflection again that broke the connection between them just reflecting one another. And um, so that was quite a dramatic reversal of a situation in which the community tried to, you know, through shouting out all the magic prayers and all the magic names and nothing could break apart these three girls in their, in their sorrow and in their deaf obsession to within half an hour, you know, being overwhelmed with the love of God, overwhelmed with who they were in his eyes, no longer needing to reflect one another. That was one of the, you know, dramatic experiences there. Obviously, every situation is going to be so unique. And 
and I think there is still a place for helping people who have developed a personality that is very real in their experience. Mm-hmm. To and although I know that the very source of this this personality is their own creative capacity, it might be helpful to say this is not your real self and we're going to cast that out. (laughs) But the real you is still the person who's made to reflect adoration and the love of God. And so we still, I think each one of those situations needs to be approached with the wisdom and the guidance of the Lord. But our understanding of what has actually happened has made it so much more um, powerful and helpful for us to to help people. That's really also why exorcism works is because, you know, the the person can identify that, that this is not me. This is is not the real me. And um, Mm. let's cast it out. But I think one thing that's come up to me um, quite a few times is what often happens is, there's such an identification with the fact that it's not me, it's somebody else, it's something else, that in moving from that place and helping the person to go forward from that perhaps habit that caused this kind of um, stronghold or whatever you want to call it, um, it actually doesn't help them to deal with it. Whereas if you recognize, you know, where, those, where the source of that has come from or where the habit or what, what, whatever it is, um, you can actually help somebody to realize what is the source of the problem yeah. and, um, you know, help them through that. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah I, I love it, guys. And, and uh, you know, I, I, I agree 100% with you. Is I think uh, what, what I typically share with people is what you – both touched on this. We are so fearfully and wonderfully made. Our our creative ability in our hearts and minds and our spirit is just beyond what we can think or imagine. Is what Scripture says. And, and uh, when we have those strongholds, like you said, Marianne, and those wrong thoughts, and we really we really just dwell on that and just meditate on the wrong thing, it literally manifests. It it starts to happen, and uh, uh, you know a lot of times. People, when we share on meditation and what true prayer is, they go, I don't know how to meditate. It says, you, you really do. You just, you really meditate on the wrong thing a lot. And it's called worry and anxiety. And if you do it too long, the stuff starts to bubble up out of you and it becomes real. And, and uh, so then how do we deal with it? Like you said, is that the gospel always wins. Love never fails. Like you said, Andre, when they see you are perfectly loved. There's no guilt. There's no shame. He's not upset with you. All of a sudden, they start to reflect their true selves, and that dissipates. Is that, that pretty accurate about summary of what you just said? Love it. Wow. So good, Mike. And I think, uh, you know, I was talking to Brad about this, too, because he was, he was like you and I. We went down the – and, you know, what, Brad, he talks about this concept that it's culturally conditioned. In, in my experience, I grew up in this little Dutch Reformed church in, in Iowa – you never saw a demonic manifestation. I never even thought about it, heard about it, never even worried about a demon or the devil ever. Mm-hmm. And then I moved to Colorado Springs and was taught the whole charismatic spiritual warfare. And guess what? You start to see it. 
But when there's no expectation, when there's no teaching, when there's no belief system that says there's anything there, you don't see it. Mm. But when it's taught and the, the priests expect it or the pastors expect it, guess what happens? The, the person's expecting it and the priest is solidifying it or the, the pastor, you know, when we were in Africa, guess what? Culturally, it shows up. Absolutely. But also when you bring the true, hey, you're perfectly loved. That's like that your ministry always loved.net. You're perfectly loved. There's no guilt. There's no shame. And really Paul's revelation, there's one spirit, guys. So where does this come? It comes from the misuse of our creative ability, the dark part of us. And it's not ontological, as Brad Jerzek would say. It's not a created entity. It's our own darkness misusing the power that we have. Mm, yeah, that's funny. One of, the, um, one of the profound fruits of this different way of understanding the symbolism of evil and what's actually happening that we've seen with some of our students. Um, I remember before one of our tours, I think it's the first time we came to, to visit you, Mike, just before we left South Africa, um, one of the girls came and met us at the airport. And this specific course, the symbolism of evil also is the one that so transformed her relationships with other people because what her, typical charismatic upbringing uh, developed in her was such a fear of evil, of the supernatural aspect of evil, that she couldn't uh, befriend people that weren't pre-approved or part of the club or part of that little church that could reinforce her thinking. If somebody thought a little bit different, if they spoke a little bit different, immediately it was fear of demonic deception that was going to ruin her life. And suddenly this whole new freedom opened up in which she suddenly realized I could actually listen to people with different views. I can actually have a conversation with people from different faiths, even not even just different churches. They can be from different faiths altogether. And I can have this conversation without fear. <laughs> and that so transformed her little world of I could only be friends with the three people in my church that's actually have time for me to a place of I just love people. I can recognize the image and likeness, the value of my Abba in every person I meet. And no longer does fear separate separate me from them, but there is this joyful anticipation that God is waiting to be recognized in every person I meet. It brings us back to Paul's way of thinking that Christ is the one in whom all things exist. Christ is the one who holds all things together. And my whole expectation while I live and interact with people is I'm going to have an opportunity to acknowledge Christ, to awaken that beauty, 
to awaken that glory in others. Um, so it really, the fruit of this kind of thinking is the kind of fruit that takes us out of the fear-based, scapegoating kind of lifestyle into a life that whoever you are, whatever you've tried to use to camouflage Christ in you, I'm going to find him, recognize him, and awaken him. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's awesome, guys. And I know it's 3.30 a.m. your time. (laughs) So I think uh, there's there's some other questions. Maybe I'll shoot to you and and, uh, we can we, you know, we can uh, come up with a a solution to answer some of those, but um, I don't want to keep you any longer, but uh, uh, maybe you can just pray, pray over this group and and, uh, uh, just uh, bless these guys. Thank you. It was such a joy. Thank you for organizing, Mike. Papa, we thank you for your spirit of revelation and understanding. And I pray right now that with, with each, in each person who has participated and each person that will listen, you will bring such a peace, Mm -hmm. such a confidence that the love of God surrounds us as a shield Mm -hmm. and fear has got no place here. But you have qualified us and enabled us to break apart the shackles of ignorance and of um, and the fear of every person we meet mm-hmm. and unveil to them the beauty of Christ within them. Mm-hmm. Thank you, Thank Abba. You. Thank you. Amen. 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 Well, God bless you guys. Sure love you guys. And uh, thank you so much. We'll, uh, we'll send you the link once, it, once it's sent to me and that way everybody can uh, uh, listen to it multiple times and you can reach out to me. Um, do you want to give your, your website alwayslove.net? Is that the best way to reach out to you if they have interest in your ministry? Yes, that is. Okay. All right. Well, love you guys. We'll see you on the trail. Thank you. (laughs) Bye-bye everyone. Bye.